and welcome to the Midlife Manifesto podcast. I'm Leslie Ellis, and this is the show where, through the stories of my wonderful friends, we celebrate and commiserate, we share the ups and the downs, and the challenges and opportunities that midlife brings. Today on the podcast, I have my lovely friend, Lisa Holsworth. Hello, Lisa. Hi there. <laughs> now, um, Lisa is a TV scriptwriter. <clears throat> She's worked on many sort of high-profile TV programs uh, that, that we'll all have seen something Lisa's written, no doubt, if we watch any mainstream TV. Lisa, I'm really pleased that you agreed to come on. My pleasure. You are kind of one of my most exciting, most famous friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we usually talk about how we know each other. So Lisa. <clears throat> I think we met probably uh, in the middle of a field because we were camping club members, or at least our parents were. And I think we sort of over the years grew up together from, you know, to having a tent next to mum and dad's caravan to being in, if you were a member of the camping club, you would know what this means in the youth area. So a little <laughs> bit away from the the, um, the the other people so you can make a bit more noise and going on youth meets, which now seem ludicrous that they just put a, a field full of teenagers together in tents. And then they still do that, you know. Let me have a disco. Good grief, what's the worst that could happen? Um, and it so, probably did. It certainly did. I think we went through a few rites of passage together over the oh, years. We definitely did. And, I mean, it's a, probably a good job that they moved the youth area out of the way because we certainly made our fair share of noise as well, oh, didn't we? Yeah. Fun, fun times. Yeah. I, I, just, I was going through some old photographs the other day and I pulled out some corkers, Lisa. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> I might share some when God. when we come to release this podcast. There's, there's no shame. Share away. That's fine. I, I own what I was. Do you know, you actually have not changed a bit. You have not changed a bit. Tell us about... You, you, you wear many, many hats, don't you? So tell us a little bit about what you do. So my day job is television writer. Um, and I've been doing that for 20 years um, and it means I, I've not been lucky enough to have anything of my own up on screen yet, nothing I've developed but I go and work on other people's television shows so I started out on Fat Friends um, back in the day, that feels like a very long time ago, I did what I would say was my apprenticeship on Emmerdale, I really learned my craft. Uh, working on a soap opera um, and then I've I sort of bounced around, I've done a lot of crime weirdly, never thought I was a crime writer but I, I did Midsummer Murders and New Tricks over the years, worked on two school shows, Ackley Bridge and Waterloo Road, uh, uh, Call the Midwife and hopefully later in this year I've worked on All Creatures Great and Small, the, the reboot for Channel 5. Are they doing a reboot? They are, very exciting, so it all got filmed in Thirsk luckily before the lockdown that was great fun. I was the I was the only writer with the Yorkshire accent on the writing team. I think I was brought down brought in for authenticity. Really? I'm gonna say this it's not one of the most Yorkshire programmes there oh, is. It was so brilliant because going back and read I'd read, read the books as a kid, but going back and reading them again, they the James Herriot books are amazing. They're so well written. So I mean was one of the easiest jobs I've ever done. The stories are all there. And at the moment, I'm executive producer and lead writer on uh, A Discovery of Witches for Sky Television, which is about witches and vampires and all that stuff. I'm, I'm having a ball on it. It's great. probably know this if you ever follow me on Facebook, but I am a bit of a vampire fan. Oh, oh you love this. Especially the, the fit, sexy, sexy... Who is? Matthew Good, who was in... Um, 
Uh, it was the the love interest in uh, Downton Abbey, Lady Mary's. Um, she, I think she ends up marrying him at the end of it, actually. Oh, the dark-haired guy. Yeah, it's very posh, very lovely, very tall. Oh, lovely. Mm. <laughs> I love me a good vampire. <laughs> Brilliant, I can't vampire. wait for that. Has that started filming then? Or? So the first series is out. You can probably get that on um, Catch Up and all that kind of thing. So that's, that was out. I wrote on the second series and then got uh, promoted for the third series. And the second series is in the edit suite right now. In fact, this morning I've been looking at some uh, rough cuts of it without it. And it looks really weird because it's got none of the special effects on it. So people are casting spells and nothing's happening and all of that kind of thing. But that'll be hopefully be out very soon and then we'll start filming, fingers crossed, in September for the third series. It's, it's a really interesting thing about the, the difference between the American and the UK system. So American writers do sit in on the edit. They have they they're there from the the soup to the nuts as we say um but british writers to be honest with you tend to be moving on to your next job uh, and so by the time it gets in the edit so it's usually a good three months after y- your bit's finished this will be different because i'm uh, also producing on the show uh, i'll be sticking around for the filming which will be a really it'll be a really steep learning curve for me i've not done it before so i'm quite excited so i'm, I'm co-exec on this with with another writer helen rayner who's an amazing writer um, and so between us, we'll, we'll be on set to make sure the actors are happy because often changes to script happen on set and it's usually the lead writer that approves them. Occasionally you'll get a phone call going, the actor can't say this word, can you change it? Or <laughs> the, the, actor, the actor feels feels his character comes off quite badly if he says this, can he say something different? And it's usually a he as well. Very <laughs> early in the show. Um, so, so I'll be on set doing it. So... so Lockdown permitting, I'll be spending the latter half of this year in, in Cardiff for the most part. Wow, how exciting! It's really exciting. So, that's another new string to you both, then, Lisa. Blime it. Is. So, you're a TV writer slash producer. So, yep. tell us what else you do. So, I also do a bit of theatre. I've come to it quite late. So, I'm involved with an organisation called uh, Unsung Collective, which is a lovely gang of women who are much younger than me who are fierce feminists. They are inspirational to me. So, we wrote a play last year called Unsung, which is about the unsung women of history, uh, including um, uh, some women that you you definitely won't have heard of, but you should have heard of. Uh, And we toured that last year, did really well. We were supposed to go on tour with it again this year, but obviously because of the lockdown, all tours mm. are cancelled. So we're converting that into an audio play at the moment. And so the four lovely actors are rehearsing via Zoom and then we'll record it later in the week and we'll put that up when, once it's edited. Uh, I produce a show called Sunlow Shorts. We would have been in our fifth year this year. And that's six short plays in a night from local writers with local actors. We do that in Leeds. That's great fun. I absolutely love that. And, and my co-producer on that is Matt Catley. He was a Leeds lad. Uh, he's a, he's written for Casualty Stenders over the years, um, and I am the chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, which is uh, a trade union that looks after writers, all writers, telly, film, theatre, books, video games, comedy, uh, poets. Basically, if you write something creatively, we will look after you. Uh, and so, this is my first year as chair of the guild, although I've been involved for a long time. I'm really happy that you've got into this role because obviously I've known you since we were children and we had a nickname for you and that was Lisa Ban the Bomb Save the Whale Holesworth (laughs) because you've 
had such political conviction from being really young. It's your calling, I think. I've, yeah, definitely been quite, I think I was quite annoying as a teenager. I would say that. <laughs> I think a few people would though. I definitely my brother would. Um, so yeah, yeah, but that's a brother's prerogative, Lisa. This is very true. I think mean, actually still calls me militant. From so. what I can remember, Stephen were annoying as well. Oh yeah, he was one. Our, our little siblings were annoying. <laughs> Mine still oh, is. Yeah. Sorry, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, as you say, that's what they put on the planet to do. Annoy you? Uh, yeah, it's it's always been very much. Uh, my mum's pretty political as well. She she's always been involved with the Labour Party. My grandfather was. My mum's dad uh, was very. Um, very good at sitting in an armchair and shouting at a politician, and I have apparently inherited that talent. Um, I can totally imagine. <laughs> it's probably a good job I live alone because sometimes <laughs> I absolutely lose it when I'm watching Question Time. So yes, so p- politics I think have always been been in my blood, and and I'd, I'm unashamedly a socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's always been the Labour Party for me, and and well, I appreciate other people have other um political allegiances um and i'm not saying the labor party is perfect in any way but that's my my party and i believe fervently that given the chance it could do a really good job for the uk yeah well it's the same sort of conviction that you had as a child isn't it it's it's you it's it runs through the very core of you lisa more than anyone else i've ever met being involved with the guild has given me because i think there's there's a real frustration for anybody who's involved in politics sometimes you, you feel you're not affecting change and i would say to anybody either join your local party or if that's not your bag join your trade union because suddenly you find yourself being able to have i've lobbied at parliament i've spoken on working class rights at parliament and and felt it was a horribly nerve-wracking experience but felt at least i'm getting listened to at least i'm getting a voice out there that isn't often listen to and just uh, that collectivism getting together with a group of people i'd strongly advise anybody's feeling very very powerless in this world and that can be a overriding feeling to to do that it's it's Mm -hmm. enormously good for your soul i think agreed i think um i mean we've not talked about this yet but we're recording this right in the midst of covid19 lockdown which is why we're on zoom and not face to face because that was the original plan um i think feeling powerless is just something we're all a bit familiar with right now isn't it absolutely and and that roller coaster of emotions we're going through from anger at what what you're seeing on television to actual pride in the i think there's a lot of pride in the uk at the moment in that seeing ordinary people who just by doing their jobs are being heroic um and i hope it, it it affects a change in the UK attitude to people. I think we often put people on pedestals that absolutely do not deserve it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about reality stars or whatever, but some people who are given far much more credit than, than they deserve when actually the postman that gets up and does his job every day or her job every day, um, the nurses, the hospital cleaners, the guy who stacks the shelves and makes sure there's enough pasta at Tesco, they are all intrinsically important to this country and if we if we understand that then i think that'll that'll stand us in good stead going forward absolutely i could not agree marley so i really really hope that this makes a difference you also do you've done some work for bafta haven't you 
I've been on a couple of judging panels. It's sort of a, a really big part of our industry at our awards. So I'm the chair of the Royal Television Society in Yorkshire. And I've, over the last five years, I've run the Yorkshire Royal Television Society Awards. And I must admit, I was a bit cynical about awards when I first got involved with them. But they are really important to people, being recognised by your peers. Um, it, it's really important and I, I'm, I've won one, I won an RTS Writers Award a long time ago for Yay. an episode of New Tricks but even getting nominated and I know that's cliche is important because BAFTA is you're originally voted by your membership and then it goes to um, a big panel uh, and I was on the panel basically you sit in a room with a lot of other writers, actors, directors, producers uh, everybody has to declare whether they've got any um, connection to the material there and then you have a big discussion um, and, and basically fight it out and the first time I did it, it was best drama and we'd, we I think we were there all afternoon imagine we had to talk about it that was the year Misfits uh, won which I, I is up on the E4 player if anybody wants to watch it it is a cracking series I thought the first series was one of the best things I've ever seen and my kids have watched Misfits all three of them oh. Misfits it's super, what a brilliant bit of writing and some great performances as well. And so you get, and as you see, most people who work in television are incredibly passionate about it, so it can get a bit heated. Uh, so now I, ch I chair the judging panels for the Royal Television Society, Yorkshire, and they can, and I do um, the news coverage, I do the um, factual side of it, because I, I usually have um, a, a connection to whatever's in the drama side, so I have to recuse myself. But it's been interesting people who make factual television and you'll know this are just as as passionate about their work as drama oh, yeah. makers it is you know you don't work in television if you don't love it in this country because there's a, a an idea that you'll make a load of money and um swan about going to nice meetings actually it's a bit of a slog it's oh my god long days well i know that firsthand obviously yeah, but back in time for tea it's kind of um one of the girls was a runner on Emmerdale and she said actually the scale of the of this program is like a full-on drama because unlike a lot of documentaries you've got a house full of props you've got an art team you've got you know we had like 15 20 people wow. around while the filming was going on yeah. um and and that was that was while we were there, when we worked there, when they were doing all the stuff behind the scenes. There were, you know, 10 cars outside, 10 vans outside, yeah. making sets and, and you know. Like, when you, you watch television now, it really changes you. It could sometimes ruin the magic of television. So I'll, I'll watch something like Bake Off. You know, when, they, when they've ruined something and they have to start again, I think, oh, there's some poor home econ economist behind the scenes going, right, have we any cherries left? Have we any of this left? <laughs> so and all that sort of the shopping that has been I used to my first job was in factual television and I used to buy the stuff for the props I used to get these sh ridiculous sh shopping lists uh, you know I had to buy 80 jellies once at Morrison's you get a funny look if you buy 80 <laughs> jellies because we were doing an experiment with jellies um, and it just it is but it was the best time of my life being a, a sort of runner production coordinator I really loved it because it, you really feel part of it I think that's a good part of television that everybody's everybody's so vital to the production that oh, uh, yeah. it's a, it feels great yeah no well I, I, 
Yeah, there isn't, is there? And everybody's so busy and they're working such long hours and it's exhausting and demanding that, you know, you just look on. I looked, we looked on in absolute awe at the work that went on and the passion and commitment. And, you know, it, it is pretty incredible behind the scenes. And because we were in front of the camera, really, we have the easy job. We just rock up, do what we're told, go up there. They're just the meat puppets, which is a phrase I would never ever use about actors and participants. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's exactly what we were. <laughs> oh dear. So, um, so, so let's talk about how you got into the industry, Lisa, because this, this is clearly, you know, your career has been on this fantastic trajectory, really. Would you say it's been a linear trajectory? Oh no, I don't. I, I really don't think anybody's career is a, is a straight line. You hear about overnight successes like Phoebe Waller Bridge and people like that. There's no such thing as an overnight success. It's all a bit of a slog and a little bit of luck. And this, my industry is still very much not what you know. It's who you know. You have to met the, do the networking to make the right connections. And I think for a lot of people, it's one of the hardest parts of of getting into the job. But um, so I went. I went away to university uh, in London to do a degree in. Um, theatre I thought and film I thought theatre was where I wanted to be but actually the film degree became much more important to me and it, and it was a completely academic degree I never picked a camera up or trod on a stage it was uh, critical theory and analysing other people's films and all that kind of thing I really loved it it's a useless degree I'm qualified to do nothing except go to the cinema if I'm quite honest with you you know what if, if this um, crisis gets any worse I'm useless they'll just say go home and stay there you, you know <laughs> Um, and at the end of the degree I'd begun to realise that writing was my thing and actually looking back I'd always been a writer English had been my favourite subject from being a little girl um, do you remember the diaries you used to write at school what I did over the weekend I used to just make it up so yeah. mum and dad would go to um, parents' evenings they're like, oh very exciting that you were in Germany last week but we weren't so basically it's a, it's elaborate lying is my job so that i was very good at it a massive imagination also a voracious reader as well I, I loved books and i think you probably remember if i ran out of books when we were away anyway that was a very serious problem and it meant a trip to a charity shop to get me some more <laughs> back the cornflakes packet if i could um and so when I came, I came back to Leeds at the end of my degree and whilst I was away, I'd written a script um, and I sort of, sort of started sending it out, looking for agents, all those kind of things. And it's, it is a hard slog. And, but at the same time, got the job in factual television mainly because I needed to, you know, pay my rent and all that kind of thing. So as a runner, effectively, in factual yeah. television. Was that through, I, through Yorkshire television? It was, and in two months of free work experience, um, they call it an internship now, I believe, but it was work experience when I did it for Yorkshire Telly for a show called um, David Jason Goes Diving, which I think should have been called David Jason Gets a Free Holiday, so I'll make some more Inspector Frost. <laughs> um, so, but they were shooting in the Cayman Islands and, and that sort of thing, and I, I worked with a really great, um, lovely producer who... who trusted me and let me do things and let me ring Florida to set up the shoot and, and stuff like that and I did a bit of running in, in that as well so a researcher runner and he wrote me a fantastic um, 
reference that got me a job just over the road from Yorkshire Telly for an independent production company called Screenhouse Productions that made history and science television. The, the Paul Bader still runs it. I still uh, now I still bump into my old boss every now and then, which is very strange. Um, it, his degrees in genetics, and he set up this company to make television programs about science so often I was the only person in the room who didn't have a PhD um, <laughs> or anything like that I'd been useless at science at school and history as well <laughs> but um, it was the, it was a lovely company to work for and Paul was an amazing boss and I actually owe him a great deal because he he allowed me to learn on the job about setting up shoots, health and safety, all the, all the stuff in production that a lot of writers don't experience and it's given me a, a really good respect for what goes into a shoe mm. so i'm not one of those writers but but you'll simply have to have the hot air balloon because I, i've signed the forms that say how much health and safety and insurance you need for a hot air balloon so i appreciate it's not an easy ask um and i loved it and i made some really good friends uh, working there and my confidence really got built up and i was really lucky that one of the producers i was working with at screenhouse productions happened to be Kay meller's son-in-law and this is where the look and the networking come in. Um, and so I, took, I printed my script out and brought it into work and said to John, um, I, don't, I don't know whether your, your mother-in-law would uh, uh, read this. He sort of took it off me, knew me well <laughs> enough then. So I said, give it here, I'll put it on the pile. Um, and he must have put it, bless him, he must have put it on the top of the pile. So I owe John Frankus a, a, a debt of gratitude as, as well. Um, because about two weeks later, I was at the christening of his son, Elliot, who was a grown up now, I think he's at university. Um, and Kay was there, obviously, because she's his grandma. Um, and she got me in the corner of John's kitchen and told me everything that was wrong with the script. And you need to think about this and you need to do that. And, and wow. Research on this, etc. And I was like, okay, yes, yes, yes. And it was, it was the first time I met. It was very intimidating. And I, I left that christening and sort of, oh, blimey, right, okay. Oh, there's a lot of work to do. And also, uh, to be honest, be a little bit down hard because part of my job is getting criticism. And at that point, I wasn't used to it you have to develop a very thick skin so I went, oh well she's obviously she always thinks it's a load of rubbish sort of thing but then a week later she rang the office and basically said i don't i don't think i ever said but i think you're a really great writer and that's a great script come in for a chat come into the office and she let me do a trial script for playing the field if you remember that show about the female football oh player. i do yeah yeah it's that long ago there. That was, yeah, it was before, before the millennium. Good grief. So I wrote uh, eight, eight um, scenes as a, as a trial for it. And she wanted me on the show, but Tiger Aspect of the production company, didn't know me from Adam. I could have been anybody. I didn't have an agent. I had no track record. I'd never had anything on in the theatre. Never had a radio play on. So their answer was no. And the BBC's answer was no. And it's probably the right answer. And about six months later, um, Screenhouse were downsizing. It looked like I was going to get made redundant. And so I rang her up again and said, look, I'll do anything. And what I didn't know is about two weeks earlier, her personal assistant had resigned and she was between personal assistants. So she offered me the job. I took a pay cut to go and do the job. And it was six months. It was tough. Being PA, and I think she'd admit it, is tough. She's, she's got a very creative mind, which maybe doesn't make a great organisation. I think she'd be the first person to say that. She also is always enormously busy. She texts 
great interest in her work. She directs it and produces it, so she right. wears many hats. So I was a, a PA, and uh, about three months into that job, she decided she was going to make a second series of Fat Friends. Fat Friends was supposed to be a one-off, um, which for people who, who don't remember, it was a show set in basically a Weight Watchers class in Leeds. And James Corden was in it, wasn't it? It was. It was his, one of his big breaks, that yeah. mystery voice. Uh, in fact, I've been out drinking with James Corden, and let me tell you, I couldn't keep up. I, I can imagine. <laughs> so, yes, around the pubs of Leeds a long time ago. Uh, probably Majestics were still going then. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, a long time back. Um and so we we suddenly were in production on Fat Friends and we had this big, what I now would call a, a writer's room, we had a storyline session. Most people came in, we came up with ideas for the characters. And in the middle of it, I started to tell Kay about what it was like to be bullied as a child and the effect it has on you for being fat. And I, and I now know that these writer's rooms often are big confessionals. What happens in a writer's room stays in a writer's room. They're very safe spaces. Um, and I, it got very emotional and I was in tears. And Kay did what any self-respecting writer should do. She put a tape recorder under my nose and recorded it all for uh, posterity. She said, that's a really interesting story. We, sh we should think about developing that. And that weekend I went home and wrote the story, wrote the treatment for the episode. Not knowing whether, thinking that I'd give it to her and Kay would write it. And so I left it on a desk on Monday morning and went, oh, there was 10 pages there of that story. I was thinking about, you know, this character and, and what have you. And that was my first commission. She, I got to write the episode. I remember it. Lisa Riley played you, really, didn't she? Yes, basically. So I'd been out drinking with Lisa Riley as well, and that was good fun as well. Well, do you know, I mean, at the time, you and Lisa Riley were absolute doppelgangers as well. It yeah, was the weirdest thing for me to watch because she really, really did look like you. <laughs> it was, and, and we and we both, really, the minute we met each other, we got on. And that was her first big dramatic role after she she finished at Emmerdale so mm. and she's she's lovely she's a brilliant a very underrated actress in my opinion mm. um so it was it was a really weird six months working on that play and also the reality of, of television writing is you're only as good as your last draft if it's not working if you can't do the job they'll say thank you very much but you're done and get someone else on to write your script so it was under, I was writing under the understanding that any minute um, it could all disappear and there was a weird period after it had finished filming uh, I gave up being Kay's PA I think she sacked me at some point uh, <laughs> go, away, go away and write I don't need you as my PA anymore um, and between the show being shot and the show coming on on screen um, I had no I had an agent by then but I had no track record nobody knew if I was any good so I went back to temping I was a, a work for the NHS for three months doing maternity cover for a secretary. Wow, I didn't that. know that. I did, yeah. I think and that was, I'm lucky, that's one of the only times I've had to go back to employment in, mm. during my career. Um, but I was sort of saying to the people in the office, oh yeah, I've written an episode of the new series of Fat Friends. And I think they were a bit, of course you have. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but then when it came on, I got phone calls from them and they all watched it. It was really, it was really sweet. And then, um, Emmerdale came along and the rest, rest, rest is history. So I've been lucky. I've, I've had down times, but I've gone from show to show uh, for the most part. I've had a few periods of unemployment. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. You've said that you write on other people's shows. So is it an ambition of yours to 
kind of do what Sally Wainwright does or Kay Meller or to have your own show? Definitely. It's, I think the bit that people don't see of, of writing, Chris, so, so the question is, like, oh, when have you next got something on the screen and all the rest of it? It's quite nice when you're able to say, oh, so all creatures great and small is coming out in the autumn. Um, but actually, a good, I would say, 70% of my job is developing ideas. It's a really tight market. It's very difficult to get things away. Um, I, I was recently at a, a session with a very well-known writer, Jed Mercurio, um, was talking at a session the Writers Guild organised, and he said he's had an idea on somebody's desk at the BBC for six months and he's waiting for him to read it. Now, this is the man who, who wrote the two highest rated pieces of television drama last year the bodyguard and uh, line of duty i expect that he walks through the doors of the bbc and they just throw some money at him so <laughs> go what make whatever you want jed but surely surely but that it's it literally is just not how it how it happens so i've had i've, I've had things just a whisker away from getting produced and then it's been a no at the last minute I've had ideas that I just couldn't get into and interestingly nothing gets worse I, myself and a, a colleague of mine have been working on an idea called Camp Hope for a long time we touted it everywhere couldn't get any interest in it but now um, a local company has suddenly and it was the easiest picture ever done it's about this and they went oh we love that yeah well We'll have that. You know, as a treatment. So it's a it's a really with and another idea legal drama that I've I got really close at ITV a few years ago. I bought the rights back because ITV owned the rights, but I bought some of the rights back, uh, and that's with another company now, and they're really interested. So uh, I would say to anybody doing anything creative, look, every no is a step closer to yes. The rejections are just, you know, some people have what they call their rejection swear jar. So every time they get a no, they put a fiver in it and every now and then they take, take themselves out for a really nice dinner or buy a nice book or a nice dress. Because um, you, you're even with a really great hit rate, I would say it's 90% no and 10% yes. And actually even that 10% is yes, maybe. not a, absolute, Nobody gets a yes, we're making it tomorrow. So um, hopefully I'll break through eventually, but it's really tough and I'm not the only one struggling at the moment. Wow. I mean, that, that is, um, you, must, you must really have to develop this kind of rhinoceros skin. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, you know, every nose different. Sometimes you get a note and actually you've worked, you've been developing it for so long that you've fallen out of love with the project. You're like, oh my God. Anyway, and I've had a couple like that. It's yeah. something that's been we call it noted to death. So everybody has an opinion like they get, oh, could you make this character gay? Could you make this character a penguin? Could it be set on the moon? Etc. etc. And you keep because you're desperate to sell it, you keep changing things till it's not the project you set out to write, and that happens a lot. Um, but so, sometimes it, it really hurts, is a real kick in the teeth and the the, one of the things we campaign for at the Writers Guild because we, we're very um, aware of the mental health of people who work in the creative industries and it can be fragile is it's better to get a quick no than a protracted maybe and I mean I've you hear horror stories. You know, it took seven years for Life on Mars, one of the biggest TV shows of the last 20 years, seven years for that to get commissioned, four years for Last Tango in Halifax to, to wow. on, script on, on, a, on the BBC's desk 
to actually getting made. So, and, and I think we need to be more honest about the realities of the industry for writers coming in because it protects their mental health. If everybody thinks, oh, I'll write Fleabag and instantly I'll be, a, I'll be getting 50 million Amazon deals, it's just not, it's just not how it works. Uh, and so understanding that everybody gets nose, everybody gets messed about, everybody, you know, has that passion project that they just can't get away. It just, it's just part of the job. But it is, I, w- I won't say I always go, oh, well, on to the next thing. Occasionally I take a couple of days to... Um, Lick your wounds, if you like. I had, a, I had a really bad weekend. I had two projects. And I went down to London to do work and I got two fairly brutal nose in quick succession. Uh, and on the way on the train back to Leeds, I ran my friend Alice Nutter and went, oh, I've just been horrible. Oh, the, the, the people are terrible. And she met me off the train with a pot pie, a bunch of flowers. She drove me home, made sure I was all right. Pot so, pie. Oh, yeah. she knows the way to your heart, Lisa. She's, she's the business. <laughs> oh, I've met Alice. She's fabulous, isn't she? She's also a writer, isn't she? really important to have your peer group I think in any creative thing and not people you're competing with but people who have your back and are rooting for you and so you celebrate their successes and they celebrate yours and that's that's the other thing the longer you're in the industry you you begin to smell the people who are not happy about other people's successes and you you cut them out of your life they, they very rarely prosper because there is work out there and uh, we can't write you know i can't write everything so me getting my knickers in a twist because sally wainwright's got another commission that's great because i love her stuff so fantastic as a viewer that's good news but yeah you, you have to support each other because it's, it's a tough world out there sally wainwright does remind me of you quite a lot do you do, can you see that her sort of um the yorkshireness a passion for Yorkshire comes through and, and your passion for Yorkshire comes through a lot. Oh, you know, on your Twitter feed when you're coming back to Yorkshire, <laughs> when you've been in oh, London. Okay, I was stood at King's Cross going, just take me home, just take me home. <laughs> Clicking my heels together, there's no place like home. Uh, I think, yeah, I think Sally, I think that's why I love her work so much because I recognise it. And it's not an uncritical eye on, on Halifax where she lives. You know, I think Happy Valley is quite critical of the area and the problems that it has there um what i really love is her di- her dialogue and it's, it's around the time that she was really hitting her stride um i had an idea at itv with the heads of drama at that time were, were really talented but very very posh uh, and i had this script that was written very much in the yorkshire idiom it was about older women and their friendships um and the note that came back when they'd read the script was, this has a, a very bitter tone we weren't expecting. Like, looking through the script, man, I'm not sure that's the way, how they come to that. And what we realised was that they hadn't realised that, that the way Yorkshire people talk to each other, how Northerners interact, is to take the piss. <laughs> so it's sarcasm and, you know, insults and, and making jokes. And the more you love someone, the more you take the piss out of them. It, it means that you care about them, that, you, that we've got a good enough relationship. That I can point out your flaws and make a joke of it and you won't take offence. And, and it, was, it was a real moment of realising there really is a north-south divide in culture, in art, that, that they were like, oh God, these women are awful to each other. Like, no, they, <laughs> they really love each other. It was a really strange moment, and and every now and then I'm re- I'm reminded I'm a northerner doing this job. 
That's fascinating, actually. So have you never been tempted to move down south? Have you never? Well, do you think that would help your career? Or I think I think if I was an actor, then probably I would have had to consider a relocation. But there is a very rich cultural life uh, in West Yorkshire. Um, the theatre stuff—I can't—I I can't make a living from writing theatre. There's, there's not enough money, in it and you know, there's, a, there's a big discussion to to be had when we come out of the lockdown about how we support our artists, our cultural life in the UK, um, because it's it's on a precipice at all times. Mm. But engaging with just the enormous talent that's in our region. I can't imagine, and, and there's, uh, there's enormous talent in Scotland, there's enormous talent in London, there's brilliant talent in Cardiff, but it, it makes me feel such a part of, of Yorkshire life, going to the different venues, knowing people, seeing what they're working on, from, you know, there's uh, Boffwally's Choir, which I love the Commoners Choir. Oh um, yeah, I've <laughs> heard them on Radio Leeds, they're bloody brilliant, aren't they? Absolutely amazing poetry, which I never thought I liked poetry, but some amazing spoken word poetry, particularly in Bradford. Um, you know, and de definitely it's a big part of engaging with the cultures that exist within Yorkshire that are not my mm. own Muslim culture, Sikh culture, Jewish culture, all the rest of it, but Afro Caribbean. I think it's such an important part of, of my life, and, I, and I'm really missing live performance while we're in lockdown. It is tough to see everything disappear from your diary oh all oh, that's gone i've got mm. tickets on, on my notice board next to me that are in june i don't think it's gonna happen but i'll leave them there until it's a definite no yeah um, mm. i've had a few well i've had a lot cancelled i go to a lot of live shows as well it's, it's a tough time in it for, yeah. for people in your industry really tough time i was speaking to um the executive producer from back in time for tea the other day actually and she was just saying it is absolutely just the worst possible time because everybody's freelance aren't they in your industry everyone virtually so the biggest part of the right the writers guild response has been trying to make sure that freelancers don't fall through the gaps of, of the, the the very good provisions that the government have put in place and i, and I, I would take my hat off to rishi sunak that he responded so quickly but we are finding massively holes yeah um, and also one of the biggest problems is is if you work in this industry sometimes you're paye sometimes you're self-employed and so those people are definitely struggling uh, to get work because as a freelancer you have your rainy day money you have an, enough money to get you from contract to contract mm -hmm. but this is unprecedented there, nobody's issuing contracts there's no work in advance there are some some green shoots coming up um Every day we're hearing through the guild of uh, companies that are going, working out how they can go back into production. Certainly the soaps are looking at how they can do it. I think it'll be look very, very different on screen for the next six months when they do get into production. Neighbours has gone back into production in Australia and that seems to be providing a little bit of a, a blueprint for how television production uh, will start again. Um, so they're doing, you know, certain actors can't cross with us. So if, if there's an infection in one group of actor, actors, they can self-isolate and they've got another set of actors to work with. No snogging, which I think, <laughs> you know, I like a good snog on screen. So that's, we're going to have to, the writers are going to have to find other ways to express love and lust. Um, so it's all going to get a bit Shakespearean, I think. <laughs> talk, talking to each other from their balconies. But 
we will be back. It's just, I think, I, my prediction is an 18-month recovery for, to, and, and for theatre, it's going to be really, really tough. Mm-hmm. It's such a shame. So you've taken on this new kind of political role in, in midlife through your guild work. You were talking about the Me Too movement and how that sort of impacted when you, you got involved with the guild. It was it was a bit of a perfect storm, actually. I think I think I do think feminism and an understanding of, of how women have been living their lives, not just in the creative industries, across the board. I think we've been on a very steep learning curve for the last five years. And and Weinstein is a, a touch point for that, the Harvey Weinstein case. I think for anybody who worked in the industry, it was still shocking to hear how brazen he was about his sexual assault. Um, and he's now a convicted rapist, so I can say that. Um, but it wasn't shocking that people covered it up, that people told women, don't rock the boat. I think most of us have experienced something along the lines of that. You're just It's just part of the industry, you just have to take it. And at the same time, um, I'm involved in a couple of female collectives for TV writers and comedy writers. Uh, and there was a lot of disquiet about the lack of drama that was getting commissioned, written by women. And we were all beginning to share our stories on secret Facebook groups. And the thing that we kept hearing over and over again is, oh, we've got something about a woman this season. It's like, well, we're not niche. We're not a genre. It's not, you don't write one thing about a woman and then nobody else can write anything about women for six months. It's ridiculous. And it was very frustrating. And then uh, it was about the beginning of 2018, ITV announced their drama slate, so the drama programming for the next six months. And there was only one thing written by a woman on it. And that was Vanity Fair by the brilliant Gwyneth Hughes. And it was a great programme, but everything else was written by men. And there was this little explosion in all the groups. Everyone was like, God, not again. They keep telling us it's getting better and it's not getting bloody better. So we were so frustrated. So we wrote this massive open letter. Well, I, I ended up writing, it was supposed to be a secret that I'd written it, but then I think approximately 15 minutes later, I started getting phone calls from journalists saying, oh, we understand uh, you wrote the letter. <laughs> so yeah, I, I wrote it with the help of the other women. We put it on, we sort of put it up on our, our, our secret Facebook group. People edited it. Let me tell you, being edited by a hundred other writers is not, not my best day. That was quite a stressful <laughs> work. I think you should move the apostrophe. I think you should shut up, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> That's very day. polite of you, Lisa. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so after a very stressful week, we, we got in touch with The Guardian. The Guardian didn't want to publish it. At that point, I think 40 women had signed it. Some people were nervous about putting their name to it and were supporters but held back, and I understand that. So we put it in our, the industry newspaper, which is broadcast. Uh, and by the time, and we left the signing open, so every, you, you saw the letter and you wanted to put your name to it, you still could. By the time we'd finished, I think we had nearly 200 people signed up to it. Um, and it was a real moment for the industry. People were, and it's, it's then the Guardian bloody reported it after that. And it, uh, my phone was going out. I did a lot of interviews. I went on um, Woman's Hour to talk about it, which was nerve wracking um, and all that kind of thing. So that happened. But at the same time, at the Guild, we'd commissioned uh, a piece of research into whether it was getting better for. Um, female writers in film and television. So we'd uh, looked at 15 years of film production in the UK 
and 10 years of television production in the UK. And the, and the bottom statistics, the, the borderlines, the sort of when we drill down into it, only 16% of British film had been written by women in 15 years. Only, now let me get this right, 14% of primetime TV drama had been written by women over the 10 year period. Now by prime time, I mean your nine o'clock, The Bodyguard, Sally Wainwright, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, in soaps, it was a good 50-50, but what seemed to be happening is no, no women were graduating from soap operas, as I was lucky enough to do, onto the, the big thing. And, and actually looking back at my career, I've lost count of the times I was the only female writer on a series. And I think a little bit of what I said before, which is, oh, we've already got a woman. We don't need another one. Mm. I think that came to play. But we knew this, this document was going on. And there's lots of other statistics up on the, if anybody wants to have a look at it, it's a very dense document. It's up on the Writers Guild um, uh, website. Uh, it's a, a 170 odd pages of statistics. And it, we didn't write it, two academics wrote it. They were completely independent. Um, and that set off a little bit of a hand grenade in our industry. Um, and what was interesting, we were warned by these two academics, look, the, the powers that be will not read this report and go, oh, my, oh, oh we've been terrible, let's immediately... We need to, yeah. You will get denial, anger, some sort of resolution, and then perhaps some action. And, and we were oh, come on, you know, the statistics, surely, nobody will like, oh, good grief. People argued, people were furious. They felt called out. Nobody liked mm. being called a sexist or prejudiced or misogynist. Uh, and because it's not always a conscious thing, is it? It's not, in fact, that's the problem. Most of the time, it's totally unconscious, that bias. Perhaps, well, I've, I've done un unconscious bias training as part of being part of the Guild. And it have been faced with your own prejudices. Oh boy, because I thought I was pretty right on and work. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trans rights and women's rights, etc., etc. I was, you know, full on work. I'm not. I'm really not. And actually, a big part of the journey is going to. So, do you know what? I, I have internalised racism, misogyny, homophobia. It's all in there. I make assumptions about people. However, work I am. Uh, based on the colour of their skin, their nationality, their gender, their sexuality. I do it all the time without even thinking it's, it's a nanosecond in the brain because that's how we're conditioned. So and it's how, how it's, it's, it's human psychology. We can't avoid making decisions. We, it's part of, it's how we survive. I, it's, it's our lizard brain. Mm. But unfortunately, our lizard brain hasn't got up to date with the reality of society now yeah uh, and so it, it it was really interesting initially that anger and eventually it came down and, and some women who were uh, very powerful in the industry stepped up and did some stuff so we we had meetings with the heads of drama and they uh, listened to us when we talked about some of the things that we think are, are limiting women uh, in the industry um it's a very macho industry. You're supposed to be at your desk from six in the morning till midnight, pew, pew, sort of thing. Actually, if, if childcare responsibilities fall on you, that's not possible. There's very little planning. I think I've, I've told you before that often I've gone down for a script edit in London on Monday and I haven't got back till Friday. Now, if I have kids of school age, that's not possible. And maybe mm. that 
rules me out of a couple of jobs. Um, again, there's the unconscious bias of thinking that um, people won't watch anything that have a female lead character, well that's simply not true, that men aren't interested in women's emotional journeys on television, again, that's not true, um, that women will only want to write soft emotional stuff, so we're getting excluded from the jobs that that are already there so when you look at some shows for example it was a long time between 2007 and i think 2017 there was a 10-year period where no women wrote on doctor who now women write amazing science fiction mm. a woman invented science fiction it was a woman who wrote frankenstein the first science fiction story of course so the idea that that they just they just weren't any women good enough to write a Doctor Who for ten years is well frankly it's bollocks so and, and that wasn't the answer that show does get singled out and I feel a bit sorry for it but there were lots of other shows that we looked at and went hang on a minute you haven't had a woman on that show for years what's going on here are you are you getting them in the office are you reading their stuff or are you assuming that something that's action based that has spaceships in it or guns or army or any of that that women can't write it. And it's and we're two timelines because we're always told that we're not funny, so we couldn't write the comedy either. <laughs> the figures in comedy are even worse. I, I, do you know what I can imagine? I think comedy's really tough. It's it's and, and the anecdotal evidence that we have from common female comedy writers is if you're not a stand-up, they're not talking to you now. It's very difficult to be on the comedy circuit. If you again, if you have childcare responsibilities, it's hard to be a woman on the comedy circuit anyway. anyway. Mm. Uh, so that excludes women as well. Um, and again, that oh, we've had Miranda this year, so we don't need another thing about you know. I've I've had the whole for a while. I was sick of hearing flea bagging meetings. God bless Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I think she's an enormously talented writer. But my God, she did screw things up for female writers for a little while because everyone was like, oh, we really love Fleabag. Have you got anything like that? No, I don't. I don't <laughs> really like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. My <laughs> cultural experience is completely different. I've not, I've, I simply couldn't write that. And Have you, have you never it. masturbated to Barack Obama? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's possibly more than I want to share on here. <laughs> Certainly not to Donald Trump. Hang on, I'm just going away to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so midlife, Lisa, let's talk about um, so where you are now. Obviously, this podcast is called The Midlife Manifesto because we talk about life stories and how midlife affects us. What are the benefits that midlife's brought to you? I, I think the pressure comes off. I think you're so self-conscious and that that voice in the back of your head from i would say god knows what age it is when it first comes in the back of your head you're worthless you're not pretty enough you're not you men won't like you because you're too opinionated all that kind of that i had that constantly met also on top of that having been very badly bullied for for being fat lots of issues around food and my body and all the rest of it and i'm not saying they'll never go away but that voice has got quieter over these the pressure to be cool the pressure to i always remember turning 30 and thinking oh thank god that means i never have to set foot again in a nightclub unless i want to um always feeling that that because I, I wasn't the girly girl and i didn't like drinking drinks with them and, you know, and this is reductive but i didn't like drinking drinks with umbrellas in and flashing my eyes at a boy across a bar uh, and 
wearing a short skirt. It was never my thing. I never felt comfortable. And what I think my midlife brought was finding my gang. So like I say, the theatre peeps I hang around with, all of that kind of stuff, finding people who had similar opinions and didn't put the pressure on and valued me for a lot of different reasons. Finding a little bit of positive reinforcement about what was good about me, creativity, being opinionated, being wordy, which in, in previous years I think had felt like it had hampered me. I'd, I'd certainly have strong memories of, of holding down what I thought, particularly around men, I'm, I'm, I'm heterosexual, so it was men I was in, I'm, I'm interested in, being careful not to be my true self, because God forbid anybody knew what a hot mess you really are. And I think you get to a certain age, and I certainly felt when I turned 40, I'm like, oh God, if you can't deal with me, then I don't want to know you. So that, I think that is definitely the pressure gradually lifting from you. So you, you are at a point where you have, to use the vernacular, zero fucks to give. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy. I think, you know, I think that's something that I'm recognizing not only in myself, but in other friends that as you come to midlife, you're the things that mattered much more when you were younger no longer matter that much, do they? You kind of. I, I wish we could give, I mean, you must experience it having, having young women as, as your daughters that that you want to say to them you are you are so beautiful you are so talented your opinion matters but knowing that there's still somewhere there's that little voice in the head that when they look in the mirror they don't see what you see that they don't understand how powerful and how gorgeous they are um because we always want something we don't if you've got curly hair you want straight hair if you're you're like a stick you want some curves if you're fat you want to be thin all that sort of thing constantly looking at other people and and measuring yourself up to them and, and god i wish i wish you could wave a magic wand so young women could could get over that much much quicker than they actually do but i think the media has a lot to do with that so i do i think social media makes it even harder now lisa for them because they're constantly they're like the instagram generation aren't they so i mean my daughters are beautiful they are absolutely stunning and they're constantly you know comparing themselves to other people's showreel photographs you know and when you look in the mirror and you're comparing yourself to that immaculate you know 150th photograph that got the right angle with the right lighting and the right filters life's tough for them yeah. and you know and, and, and as a mum I find it frustrating that they just can't see their innate power and you know and, and that's been my I suppose my parenting journey uh, has been giving them an equal voice or trying I can't say I'm perfect at this in fact no. the kids would completely uh, disagree um but but I was brought up in a home where well you know because you knew my dad <laughs> he was a bit of a misogynist and um you know, one of his favourite sayings was children should be seen and not heard. Yeah. And he used to say things like, why should I have to do that when I've got three women in the house? You know, kind of Oof. thing. And uh, so I kind of grew up in that environment that, that my voice wasn't as uh, important. And that's something I've tried to prevent from happening with my children you know yeah. giving them a voice 
I think is the most powerful thing that we can do. I think one of the most positive things about about your girls' generation is they're very supportive of each other. That you know, they are fixing each other's crowns and yes queening and all of that kind of thing. And I certainly see see through the young women I work with um, in the Unsung Collective, they're enormously supportive of each other. Which I think, I think we, our generation to a certain extent, were brought up to see other women as the competition. Uh, and not colleagues because often you were the only woman in a room so if another one walked in it was like okay well she's definitely my competition um tina mm. Fey talks about when she in her book bossy pants which i would advise anybody to it's a great read so tina Fey made 30 rock uh, and the the unbeatable kimmy schmidt great writer at the start of her career she was in the writer's room um of saturday night live the, you know one of the biggest comedy shows in america and she sat at this enormous table loads of college boys making tit jokes and stuff like that but at the other end of the table uh, was amy Poehler, who went on to make uh, parks and recreation and things like that and she said for the first couple of days they looked at each other and, and were daggers that because automatically two women should be in competition and then and she's, she's very honest about it. amy came up to her and said should we not do this everybody else on that table is also our competition so we might as well work together and have each other's backs and they've been friends ever since and i think that that is a really positive change i've seen in young women and and i'm trying to be more like that person but it is interesting that i think you do mark out who your competition is and it's usually the other woman and i think you know look skinny women still predominate you know we've still got the made in chelsea's of this world and all, all of that kind of thing but see an artist like lizzo come forward and you know at her young age i think she's fantastic she's but awesome she, just stunning and to be she owns her sexuality with no shaming um she you know her, so, her songwriting is outstanding she plays the flute she's a big woman and she owns it see that more i think more role models are coming through like that. i mm. think like i think Dawn french and victoria would very much my role models but you know looking back at them seeing how they were struggling with you know Dawn French being in a, a mixed race marriage, getting dog poo put through a door and things like that, that it wasn't a straight run for them. It was hard for them as well. So understanding that it's a struggle. And for, look, for men as well, not all men, some men struggle with as much with their mental health and all that kind of thing. But the more open we are to listening to people, the better it'll get. I think that um, the boys are so different now to the way that they were in our generation. So Harvey, he's so tactile i mean he's a tactile boy anyway but with his friends they cuddle they lay together on the sofa watching telly he tells them he loves them they 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 this and i sometimes say johnny would you say that to your best mate and he went uh, no all <laughs> <laughs> they have is banter but harvey and his friends talk they yeah. really talk and, and that's a really positive positive change Definitely. i think this younger generation they really bring in so much to the table that's going to benefit the rest of the world i, I agree and i and I, I wish people will i see so many oh god millennials oh. Oh, so particularly when the when the covid crisis said oh god you're all such snowflakes etc etc and i just I, I find it so negative and i stamp it out wherever i say because i think kids have it 
from education onwards, I think they have it tougher than our generation had it, to be quite honest with you. I think it's really hard for them at the moment. I agree. And I'm surrounded by young people. When you've got teenagers, you do tend to, and because we have a house that's big enough to accommodate, you know, a few teenagers, we've yeah. generally had weekends with houses full of, of young people. And so I feel I'm fairly qualified to comment on this. And I honestly think they're an absolute brilliant, intelligent, insightful, open, fantastic generation. I think the future is bright if, you know, if our young people have got anything to do with it, for sure. Oh, Elisa, thank you so much for for your uh, time. I've absolutely loved this. This is so fascinating. finish with a fact of the day and I were trying to find a fact of the day which might somehow be relevant to our conversation but once again nah not at all (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but did you know that in the UK it is actually legal for women to be topless in public oh that's interesting provided (laughs) (laughs) that they don't cause alarm (laughs) Now there's there's the issue, isn't it? When you hear those stories about people getting vexed because someone's breastfeeding in public, it's like it's what they're there for. That's what they were designed to do. Yeah, um, I think I think we're a long way off in society where a, a topless woman doesn't cause alarm. Just walking, <laughs> just, just walking down down the high street, I think I think we've a way to go for that. I think we're. Do you know what? That would never. I might have been dragging on the floor at these days. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be risking a black eye, frankly, if I was running. So. In New York, it's also legal, and another 15 states, it is actually legal, as long as it's not for business purposes. (laughs) (laughs) I like that proviso, that's very good. (laughs) So there you go. So thank you so much, Lisa. This has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Gorgeous, thank you.